Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Fourth State Podcast. I am your co-host, Marty Duran. And I am Bob Smetana. Sad Bob Smetana because his New England, new, see, I still can't even say it, because the Patriots uh, did not win the Super Bowl. Uh, I am not particularly sad. I am a little disappointed, but they already won five, so that's kind of nice. And plus, these Eagles are so... They're so likable. You know, you see the shot afterwards with the backup quarterback, the plucky backup quarterback, holding his baby. It's like, oh, and plus that, I mean, they they played well. They just played better. Uh, And they're kind of a likable team. It was was a great game. It was was a good game. It was a good game. And for me, the the non-fan of any particular team, uh, all I can hope for is a good game. And it was a good game. And the, and the Eagles won. They just they won. There wasn't a when the the Patriots have lost in the past. The other teams played right. well, but there's been a fluky play hits the guy in the head and it sticks to his helmet. You know, some kind of crazy fluky play. Is that what you guy call falls it? on the ground? Is that how you define a catch? A crazy fluky play where it <laughs> when, sticks to his helmet. <laughs> basically, when they throw it up, when you know the quarterback's being chased. You know, they're about to throw him to the ground. He heaves it up in the air, mm-hmm. and the guy pins it to his helmet and falls down. That that's uh, kind that's of a, called a catch in that's called NFL fluky. Called Most people catch it with their hands when it sticks to your helmet. <clears throat> so when they, not, when they when they deflate the footballs, what do they use? Their hands? Uh, I nobody deflated any. Deflated oh, any okay. You know, after Deflate Gate, they crushed the other team in the Super Bowl. They won. They won two Super Bowls since Deflate Gate. It doesn't so matter. They just help their confidence. So. But I, you know, the, the the Eagles had that trick play. They threw it back to the quarterback. They yeah, played better. And play. and when the uh, late in the game, when they when it was fourth down, and the Patriots were a little bit ahead, and if they, it was on the Eagles side of the field, if the Eagles had punted there, the Patriots take the, take the ball and crush them and win. But they were like, no, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down swinging, and they yeah. they took it away. They they weren't intimidated. That's what usually happens to yeah, other coaches. They go, oh, this is the other team. We're going to lose. And these guys were like. Hey, yeah, <clears throat> we're not going to lose. But enough about the 2017 Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, today on the Fourth State, we have um, one pretty broad story uh, coming out of Moody Bible Institute. This has been unfolding, I guess. Well, <clears throat> obviously, it's been happening for a while, but it's been unfolding in the media for a couple of weeks or so. Uh, and there are multiple storylines. Uh, that are in this having to do with faculty, having to do with finance, having to do with charges of racism. Uh, there's a lot going on. Why don't you catch us up? So, so a couple of weeks, weeks ago, the president, uh, the CEO, and the provost of Moody Bible Institute uh, all uh, quit all the same day. They all resigned. Uh, the provost retired, actually. Two resigned, one retired. But it was, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, turmoil over the direction of the school. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things going on. One is that there are, um, they're having decrease in enrollment. They had to shut one down on their campuses. There are concerns uh, uh, over theology. Some people on the staff think that professors aren't as committed to inerrancy. And there's disagreements over what inerrancy means and this for these professors there's personality conflicts. There's some questions. The uh, the board let the president borrow half a million dollars to buy a house, and that's uh, it's not illegal. It's a questionable practice. 
You think, okay. me, you think they let me borrow half a million dollars to buy I don't think so. I don't think so. Usually they just buy a house and the president live in, in this case. Yeah. That, that was a little bit weird. Um, one of the... Uh, was this his primary living space or was this like a secondary living space? I think space? this is his primary living space. So okay. they wanted to live near the school. Now he made a quarter million dollars a year. You think he could buy his own house. Um, and then there's a question over Jerry Jenkins, who's the was on the board, was chairman of the board for a while. Uh, big donor. He's, Big, big donor. He liked to play poker. They used to have a rule that you couldn't gamble at school. They changed the rule. Uh, the implication is that they changed it for him so he could play wait poker. Minute, wait a minute. Jerry Jenkins was playing poker with Last Day's books money? <laughs> yeah, he loves to play poker. So wow. he's so I don't know if it was Last Day. He said a lot of books. would be very proud of him. So, so there's a whole lot of things going on here. And plus, the, the, there is some um, – the schools become much more diverse ethnically and that's brought discussions about race and racial reconciliation and privilege and all these kind of things, which there's been pushback against it. So all these things are happening at the same time. So, and, and so you've had stories about this. Some are just like these people resign. Some are like, Hey, they resigned because there's wrongdoing. Uh, one of the whistleblowers is like got fired. She's like, Hey, there's all these problems with theology and unethical behavior. And then other, some of the students are like, Hey, this president was addressing issues of race, and we think there's a race problem here. So it's probably true that all these things are true. There's questions about finances. Uh, they're building a big building because Moody has a publishing arm, a broadcast arm, and a college. And the probably isn't doing as well as the other parts. But that, that you know, so they're building a big building, and they got money problems. So when you, when you have a lot of money, and things aren't tight. People don't worry about money. When, you're, when your enrollment's down and you're, you've had to have layoffs, then someone looks at this half-million-dollar loan and goes, hey, why'd you do that? You know, we could use a half-million dollars for something else. Um, so if you're a reporter, you, you look at this and you say, all these things could be true at the same time, and which is the most important, and, and the different parties who are in school are going to have different views about what is most important. So um, <clears throat> to that to that end, that's similar. Uh, without going off on political tangents, that's similar to what we're seeing in this ongoing Russia story. Uh, it seems like where you've got, I don't know, maybe as many as ten different possible scenarios um, with so many moving parts. I don't know who can keep up with them all. Um, so you've got. You know, within the last week, you've got one party uh, in in the House has released a set of information that they say supports their charges. Then apparently the other party now wants to release uh, a set of memos or texts or a memo or something like that that supposedly supports their particular angle. And I asked you before you started recording, is there any way to ever get to the bottom of this kind of stuff? before the 50 years up and you know, it's, it's unsealed like Al Capone's vault. Uh, and then, you know, you've got reams of paper that are then available digitally, probably mm -hmm. uh, that, that everybody can sort through, but nobody that's alive today is going to be alive then to know what the facts turned out to be. Yeah. How do you get to the bottom of all of this stuff? Or can well, you? I, I don't know if you can, but the first thing you can start out by, by being skeptical. So just I don't believe you. Just because somebody says something is true doesn't mean it's true. And, you know, we talk a lot about fake news. 
so sometimes we're talking about different facts. Sometimes we're talking about what the facts mean. And as these are a lot of these, this is our arguments so over, we have some similar facts, but uh, this disagreeing um, interpretations of those facts. So one thing you can do is be skeptical. Somebody says something, they go back to the, some of these documents are going to be released. Read them, read them. And then think about when you're listening to somebody, think about what is their angle? What's their angle in the story? Mm-hmm. You know, what is their background? How are they reading it? Um, find some uh, sources that uh, have, who are experts who look at this. There's a really, uh, when the memo came out, David French is a very conservative lawyer uh, and constitutional lawyer looked at it and said, oh, okay, here's some ways to think about this. So look at some experts, but, you know, just remember that every party in this is not interested in, they're interested in finding the truth. They're also interested in winning. This is about winning. Okay, and so, so, so let's, yeah. let's uh, clearly that is the case almost any time you have a spat between two political parties, especially yeah. in our country in, in this context right now. But how does, yes. that, how does that then flip back over to the Moody situation? I mean, is, is that school so divided? Uh, I mean, clearly there is something. You don't have three of your top you know, faculty and leadership resign and or, and or retire on the same day just because, you know, it was the vernal equinox. I mm-hmm. mean, there's something obviously going on there. Um, so how to, in the case of Moody, I mean, do you just wait for more stories to come out? Is there, I mean, everybody can't just start making phone calls through the students. That's true. That's true. I think you can, you can try and read, um, you can try and read as much as you can, as widely as you can. Actually, there's a good third story, um, by a guy named Josh Shepard, who, who, you know, basically summed up that all these things are at play. So what's happened at Moody is, a reflection of what's happening in the culture in general. It's becoming more diverse, especially in churches. So how are these churches going to solve these problems? Mm-hmm. And then what is going to be like for, I mean, one takeaway from that story is this will probably happen to mo- a lot of Christian institutions, especially evangelical ones. As older folks who are mostly white die off, younger folks come up who are a much more diverse group are going to have some different ideas. So you'll have different generational ideas, you'll have different ethnic ideas from different ethnic groups. So there's going to have to be a lot of conversations and, uh, and there'll be financial pressures. So I think with Moody, it's going to take a while to come out, but also I think um, what you have to do is go and read these stories. A lot of them, they have links to some of the documents and then say, okay, uh, maybe all these things are true. And the school, the school obviously is not getting the outcome it wants. So there's going to have to be, some changes, but they're going to have to decide, you know, how do we resolve these issues? And I think the school's leadership is more interested in the school's well-being over the long haul. I, I really, you know, rather than some well, of our political uh, leaders, <laughs> maybe not have that. That's probably unfair, but there is a, they have a vested interest in the school doing well. Um, I don't know necessarily if all our political leaders, they want their party to do well, and I think they think their party will help the country do well. So I'm probably being unfair. But I think, you know, if you're, if you're an outside person, you read what you can. You think about, okay, where are all these people coming from? But then I think you just have to realize, in your own family, right, 
go back to this with this rush thing on the Moody. When you and your kids have a disagreement, or your spouse, or there's a family disagreement, everyone has different viewpoints of the different things that happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it helps to have a little humility to say, oh, maybe that person has a, has a point. There's something I should listen to there. It may not be the whole part of it, but there's something there that I don't see the whole picture. Mm -hmm. um, so here, here's a, for instance, and I, I've, I've told this story a bunch of times. I don't know um, how many, um, how many times I've told it on the podcast, but <clears throat> several years ago, there was a reporter uh, who was a Pulitzer prize winning reporter. His name was Gary Webb. And uh, he worked for the San Jose Mercury News, which I think is either going out of business or almost out of business. Mm -hmm. They're down to like 30 employees. <clears throat> and um, he found the connection between uh, the Contras who were fighting a rebel war in Nicaragua and uh, the sale of cocaine in Los Angeles. And that cocaine was being turned into crack cocaine and it was fueling the crack epidemic across the country. Now, Webb was very careful to say in his story that there was no direct connection between the CIA and this uh, group of people who were working in Los, specifically, I think it was South Central Los Angeles, uh, who were Nicaraguan nationals mm -hmm. who had immigrated to the States, one of which was a CIA informant or FBI informant. So Webb wrote this story, and in the story, there was enough evidence to assume that law enforcement was kind of looking the other way while this cocaine was being imported and sold on the streets, and then the profits were going back to the Contras so that they could buy weapons to fight against the government of Nicaragua, uh, most specifically Daniel Ortega. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was uh, other people – took Webb's writing, which left just enough loop, just enough spaces to where he didn't make claims he couldn't support. Uh, but anybody who wanted to do extra research could fill in the blanks. Uh, so he left the blanks, published the story. It was the, it was one of the biggest stories to hit early online. They got like a million page views back when people still had dial up. Uh, it was unbelievable. So mm -hmm. they posted links to all of these documentation that he had pulled together. So all you had to do was go read it for yourself. And he, he eventually published a huge volume, about 600 pages called uh, the dark Alliance, which was the name of the story. Mm -hmm. Right. So of course, uh, all of the government uh, denied that anything was happening. Uh, the Reagan white house, uh, pulled strings at the Washington post and the Los Angeles times. And they attacked not only the paper, but they attacked Webb. He ended up being fired uh, or excuse me. He ended up being demoted to basically the guy who wrote stories about, you know, people on the street uh, in a satellite office. Marriage failed or almost failed or did fail. Uh, he ends up committing suicide. <clears throat> right. After he committed suicide, not not related specifically to what I'm about to say, but it was after he committed suicide that this came out. The inspector general uh, of the CIA or an inspector general was assigned and basically affirmed all of Gary Webb's reporting 
and even went farther than Webb himself had gone to verify that some of the suspicions other people had had were actually true. That the CIA had been involved in a type of cover-up, that they had given cover to uh, people who were bringing drugs into the country to sell on the streets to be turned into crack cocaine, uh, and the funds were being channeled back to Nicaragua to arm the Contras. So all of this was essentially confirmed by the CIA's inspector general after, after Webb was dead. <clears throat> but if that, if that inspection had not taken place, if that internal investigation had not taken place, then Webb would have gone on to his reward. Mm-hmm. Everyone who ever heard his name would assume that he was a failed reporter and that nothing that he said was true or that he'd overshot his goals or he'd made stuff up instead of realizing however many years after the fact that he really was onto something and that his reporting actually changed the way that things needed to be done. Does it always take that long to figure out the truth? Uh, still takes longer because <laughs> because the other so it's interesting too because Webb is a controversial figure with other investigator reporters sure, sure. who who sort of think you know uh, he overstood stood his overshot his uh, claims claims sure, so that's, sure. yeah it takes it, it'll take forever like it's if this is the hard part of an investigation you are trying to get as close as you can to the truth. Uh, in, with people who don't want you to know the truth. Yes. And then when you, once you get the classified documents, then you're, you think. Uh, so it probably will be 50 years till we get a book on here. How's this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll look back. Uh, you think about things like the, um, there's a great book on all the sterilization that was going on. So for yeah. a long time, you know, in the early 20th century, it was common practice to sterilize people who were, Considered criminal, who were criminals, or got un, you know were unwed mothers. Yes. Uh, you know, there the whole idea. The word imbecile comes from this idea that there are people who are uh, who are less human than other, basically. And we yes. want to eugenics. So, eugenics. There's eugenics, and that was pretty commonplace. And we now we know more about it, but it took years to go back and look at those records when all those people are dead. The name of that book, by the way, is War Against the Weak by Edwin Black. Yeah. Uh, and there's another one called Better for the Whole World, I think. So it's called, yeah, there's, there's, there's two work, works on, books on that, but it has to be with uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes has a famous quote about this, uh, having a couple generations of imbeciles is yes. enough. Yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> now, it should also be pointed out, since we're r- running down this rabbit trail, that, um, that your typing is really, really loud. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was trying to... I'm trying, Sorry, I'm just trying to. It's Buck versus Bell. There's a book about Buck versus three generations of imbeciles is enough. Okay. Um, um, but, yeah, okay. So, so the point that I was uh, the point that I was going to make was that uh, while we're on this trail of eugenics, that in yes. that, in that book and history now records that a significant number of thinkers who were extraordinarily influential. I'm not, you know, we're not talking about people who wrote in letters to the editor. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who headed up think tanks, who headed up research, oh, yeah. you know, institutions and all those kinds of things thought that things like poverty were genetic. So you were poor because that's what was in your genetic code was to be poor. 
so they're the reason that they sterilized people. This was the, the pretense that they had. They, they thought scientifically that if they could sterilize a generation of poor people, then that would stop poverty. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know that to be idiotic now, but they certainly thought that it was true then. And so yes. you have not, and I thought this was, this was interesting. I haven't finished reading this book. I've read uh, several chapters of it, uh, war against the week. But when you think about this, you, we typically think we, when I say we, I mean, Southern, Southern evangelicals typically think that this was limited to some Planned Parenthood scheme or uh, Margaret Sanger or something like that. And we think that this was merely a strategy to slow the population growth of black families. But the real is that the reality is that way beyond Sanger. Now she was neck deep in eugenics and I don't yes, know yeah, yeah. her dying day that she ever repudiated it. Uh, <clears throat> but it was in Appalachia uh, counties in Virginia and West Virginia. There were uh, kids who were sterilized under the uh, guise of having their appendix taken out. Mm-hmm. And apparently in California, there was a huge movement in this same thing. So I wasn't surprised at all that counties and states on, you know, in, in the Appalachian area had tried this mm-hmm. thing. I was pretty surprised to realize it had also gone on in California, uh, oh, yeah. the land of foresight or, you know, fruits and nuts or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that was a little bit of a shocker to me. Yeah. Yeah. If you, um, it is a shocker. There's another book called the, uh, better for all the world, um, about, uh, eugenics. This is the same case. It's probably the same as the war in the week. It's, uh, it's really, yeah, these are doctors saying this is, this is what's going to happen. It's what, what's ironically is, um, one of the uh, plaintiffs in this, uh, in the case that, that made this legal, uh, Buck versus Bell, uh, her daughter ended up, I think, going to college and being quite, quite a gifted student. Wow. Uh, she went, I think she was adopted and then became a gifted student. I think it's Carrie Buck is her name. I remember, but I could be wrong. Well, but anyway, it's, it's definitely one of the people who's involved in. Yes. Eugenics. I just don't remember where. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of the, she's the plaintiff in, uh, Buck versus Bell and, okay. uh, her daughter ended up being quite a gifted student and doing really well in life. So, so there's a kind of irony there that, um, Oh Yeah. You know, this is going to be getting rid of uh, unwanted folks. Uh, germplasm, you know, of unfit family strength. Mm-hmm. It's really terrible stuff. You have to go back and think. But I think it takes a while. You know, it's funny. There's a, there's a the Washington Post, one of the editors from the Washington Post, to go back to the, the CIA drug story, you know, uh, he's kind of, he did an op-ed. He, he had debated Webb. He wasn't real impressed by it. He thought Webb overstated but he, he has this great line in his op-ed. In the age of waterboarding and Edward Snowden, widespread CIA cocaine trafficking seems not only plausible, but downright, downright antiquated. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, there is a lot of, I mean, there, this is when you're doing investigative reporting. These are the hard things. There are things going on in the world that people don't want you to know. Sometimes it's at your church. Sometimes it's a nonprofit. Sometimes the government is doing widespread spying that seems questionable. And sometimes, you know, 
you find out these things, you're trying to track down as much of the truth as you can. Um, but it's not like uh, organizations, even the best intentions, are going to be transparent and say, well, here's exactly what went on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Moody yeah. Bible's not going to do that. The Senate's not going to do that. Your church isn't going to do that as a pastor leaves. They're not going to give you, <clears throat> tell you everything. So the reporter is always working at a disadvantage, and that's why you got to be careful. I think you have to be careful when you report something. You have to be careful when you read something. You have to be careful to only state what the writer and reporter says are true. And you can question. You should ask those questions. Does does the evidence in the story? back up the conclusions. Yeah. Is it precise enough? There's always this kind of argument of our precision. So you should always ask, how do they know that? Someone says this such and such happened. Well, how do you know that? Well, um, I mean, we're seeing this in Nashville now with the mayor of Nashville. Right. Mayor of Nashville has an affair with her chief of security. She gets up and says, well, it's a personal thing and God's going to forgive me. So actually the newspaper here in town did a whole article about whether, whether people should forgive her. But one of the things that comes out is, is is her claim, this was just personal, we didn't misuse any funds, true, or does someone have to go down and track down, you know, were city funds used, because they were traveling a lot together, or did she use her office to help his daughter, um, and you just have to track down those facts. It's, it's, you, could, you could say, well, it looks wrong when two city employees are traveling together to Greece, and they're having an affair. That's, you know, but if money was misused, someone has to go look at the receipts and track down and, and it doesn't make it true because she says it didn't happen. doesn't make it true because we suspect it did happen. You've got to do the reporting and then the, the documents and the evidence will, um, you know, then you have to make a judgment on those. You look at the documents, look at the evidence and say, and then if there's a report, report, the city's going to do an investigation of our mayor. They're going to say, we think based on these documents, based on these facts, here's our conclusion. They could be wrong, but um, it's it, right now in the 24-7 news cycle, it's so hard. I mean, if you go back to – let's go back one more step. Now we're not on rabbit trails. If Man, you ever watch – If you watch um, All the Presidents Met, the great Yes, movie, I have watched it like – 10 times in the last 12 months. Ten times. Just think about how long they worked that story, how, how little they published, yeah. what they got wrong at times. And it doesn't end like it takes years. It takes years for the Watergate reporting and then for the Watergate hearings and then for the president to step down. It's not like Twitter today. Yeah, like like the Twitter, uh, it was years and years and years and years after this break-in of reporting, of running this stuff to ground to find the details, uh, and now we're just you know, and it doesn't even end. <laughs> it sort of ends, not even uh, what we think. It doesn't end. It doesn't end with Nixon leaving, or it sort of impl- tells you about it. Yeah, it but has it's, the big. Uh, it has the big. Uh, typewriter thing. Yes, but it ends with him. I think the last one of the last scenes is him getting reelected, isn't it? Or, or am I wrong? Um, it he, doesn't end. He is reelected during the. Um, uh, he's reelected during the movie. Okay. Yes. Okay. But it doesn't end. It doesn't end with him 
you know, with that famous scene of him getting on the helicopter no, no, waving no. goodbye. No. So we don't even get, you know, uh, we don't even get to um, the the point of that movie. You think, oh, the, all the president's men is about the fall of Nixon. Well, it's really not. It's about the investigation, which takes forever. Hey, here's you. Here's you a. Uh, here's you uh, a bit of journalism trivia. Okay. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. In <laughs> real life. Okay, you remember in the movie All the President's Men, one yes. of the early scenes is they, they give uh, Robert Redford the assignment. There was a break-in at the Watergate. Go to the court and listen to the pleas. Listen to the arraignment. You remember that? Yes. All right. Guess which uh, female reporter in real life was also in the courtroom, and it was her first assignment with the paper because everyone else was, re- was covering the re-election campaign, and the Post sent her over because it was a nothing story. Was it Quinn? Who? Sally Quinn? Nope. Hmm. I don't know. Do you know? Leslie Stahl. Leslie Stahl. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was in the uh, uh, Watergate podcast that I've been listening to. Yeah, because Sally Quinn is – Sally Quinn got something for them, but she was, she was yeah. in society. Yeah, she wasn't in – Yeah, that was a different angle. But, no, Stahl is not even yeah. mentioned in the movie that I know of. Or think, yeah, or think about Spotlight, the other great movie. Yeah. So how long? Yeah, it took and, a and long how, time. Then it got interrupted by 9-11. 9-11, and it took a long time. Some of the stuff had been reported uh, beforehand and that there were other victims, but it just didn't, it didn't, right. uh, it didn't, didn't take until you just go, oh. Um, and then sometimes people just don't care. I mean, that's the other part. You can do all this reporting. I have been, I've done reports where, you can lay out all the facts and people don't care. They're just like, Oh, that's all right. Okay. That's all right with us. Here's one. This is a story that, uh, had the story itself broke about three months ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. And there was a follow up today that I was absolutely shocked about. Okay. So about three months ago, there was a report. I think it came out of the New York daily news first, or maybe the New York post Mm -hmm. of two undercover narcotics cops who picked a, 17 or 18 year old girl up off the street who was hanging with some friends. I think there was pot involved. They picked her up, dump her out on the sidewalk. About two hours later, she claims that both of them raped her, uh, is taken to the hospital and DNA testing proved that she had indeed, uh, I'm going to say had sex with, uh, both of these policemen. <clears throat> these narco- these undercover narcotics officers. All right. She mm-hmm. claimed she claimed rape. They claimed it was consensual. Okay. She's in a van with two <laughs> undercover cops, uh, and both of whom are bigger than she is, and they claim it's consensual. She says it's rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly thereafter, both of them are charged with rape. They're fired from the force. Mm-hmm. Today, I read, and I think this is a BuzzFeed article, where 35 states do not prosecute police officers for sex with someone in their custody as long as the cop says it was consensual. Thirty-five, 35 states in the good old U.S. of A., you can't find or you don't find or there's no law against or whatever. Yes, yes, no law against it. A police officer having 
sexual relationship with someone who is in their custody. And as long as the cop can claim it was consensual, then they won't be prosecuted or it's very hard to find them guilty of uh, a crime. Why didn't you write about that when you were at the newspaper? I did not know that. I did not know Tennessee because you you don't know that laws around until it happens. Tennessee is one of these laws. That's, that's a, there are, we have lots of bad laws out there. That's, that's insane, a pretty big, man. That's a that's an insane. Uh, but you know they probably passed that. Law. Or I wonder if they didn't pass a law saying it's illegal. I mean, you would think this would be commonsensically. I not would funny. think this yeah. the <clears throat> not being able to have a sexual relationship with someone that you have legal custody over via arrest. Yes should be as illegal as a teenage, as a school teacher having a oh, yeah. Yeah. relationship with the student. There is yeah. no question about it. So after I ragged on you for not doing the reporting when you still work for the paper, uh, it is important, I think, to note that this is now, it, this will now be a public conversation, not because mm-hmm. the, uh, what do you call those people who take up money for the, for the police, um, uh, fraternal order of police yes, yeah. made this public. This will be public because a a reporter, mm-hmm. apparently a guy from Bu- for BuzzFeed, did the homework of finding this girl, interviewing this girl, and then looking up the law. Yep. Uh, and then writing a story about it. And I would expect that now that it's more widely known, that you will find some states over the course of the next few yes, months yeah. fixing this to where it will be then illegal for this kind of an arrangement. Uh, Of course, somebody can always be raped while they're in custody, but uh, an officer won't be able to claim that it was consensual and that be an action. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it'll be outlawed. So this is the kind of thing that, I mean, this is the whole kind of, I mean, this will be the follow up to the whole me me too, me too thing. A lot more people will say like, these are things you can't do that you think uh, might be. And there are things that people have, Winked and nodded up for a long time, and then they, uh, you know, now they're gonna. But you know, this is what reporters do: they go, they hear something, they go track it down, they go talk to the people, they tell us things you don't know about. I mean, you think there would be a law against this? Well, there isn't, and some states have passed them, but a lot of states haven't. So, if you don't know something is wrong, I was I was look at reporting like being a scout. You know, you go out, you gather up information about what's going on around you. You bring it back and tell people, hey, here's what's going on around you. You should know about this. Yeah. And then you can decide what to do with it. But, um, you know, nobody, the police don't want you to know that. Yeah. Not, I'm not picking on the police, but sure. no, nobody in the... People who are in authority, authority. Who, are, who are misbehaving or yes. trying to hide something or taking advantage of loopholes Yes. don't want it to be found out. It's pretty much that simple. Yes. Yeah, they don't. And... uh I mean, I think you look at this, this, uh, this will be a whole other story, this whole story about, um, you know, uh, the, the pastor in Memphis uh, yeah. who's accused of sexual assault. You know, now th- there's a, one of the things his defense is, well, this was consensual all these years ago. And um, this was, you know, we've dealt, dealt with the sin part of it. And, and we're not talking about the abuse of power. So, you know, people will try and define 
so the minister in that story, once once he was accused of assault, has confirmed all the facts in that story. All the facts of what this what the young woman who accused him of assault has said are true. Like the material facts he's agreed to. What he hasn't agreed to is what they mean. Whether this was him taking advantage of her or whether it was just was two people in love, you know, yeah. getting over uh, overexcited. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, he apparently thinks that uh, the 18-year-old having a relationship with the 22-year-old bastard is okay, or 17-year-old, you know. Um, but, the, you know, the facts, so there's the facts, and then there's what do these facts mean, and where is all the context, and then there are people, you know, it's hard for you to, I mean, here's, here's the thing. Say you get caught for a speeding ticket, or you have an accident, most of the people involved, sometimes you admit that you're wrong, but you always think the other person's to blame. Right? There's always some, right? There's always some reason why in an argument the other side is wrong, and you don't. You, we are not good observers of our own uh, behavior, and that I think that's in some ways what a reporter does is say, "Okay, I'm going to look at what you say, and then I'm going to verify. If you say this happened, is it true? Is it possible that you're right? Is it possible that you're wrong?" You know, could things have happened? Someone says, "I," you know. Uh, so I, this is probably a whole other thing. But like when I hear a pastor's sermon about something goes on, I fact check it. Not the not the biblical text, but the anecdote they use. You know, someone says we feed five thousand people this year in our homeless ministry. I want to know did they count? Because people, you know, you need to have some kind of verif- verifying of claims. So reporting is important that way. Yeah, that's a way off tangent. <laughs> and and with that, we will apologize for running down so many rabbits uh, this time. We didn't even get to Gloria Copeland talking about uh, how to how to not have the flu by saying I don't have the flu. You'll have to uh, look that one up on your own. Yes. Um, Positive confession. You got You know, if you are if, if you say that bad news is true when, uh, in this kind of prosperity gospel, then you make it true. Well, I'm about to make some bad news true because we're at the end of the podcast episode. No, yeah. don't hey, say it's not I just, so. I just, I just spoke a negative reality, and here we are. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I do. I reject your reality. <laughs> want to create my own. So, so what that means is I'm going to uh, stop recording, and Bob's going to keep talking. I think that's uh, that's what that comes down to. Uh, Bob, unfortunately, uh, at the end of the last episode, you. Uh, begged people, you begged our listeners to hashtag that they wanted your hippie music for the intro and the outro. There were none. So we will not be using Bob's Hippie Jesus music for the intro and the outro. This is making me sad. I think maybe what I'm going to do at the end of every episode is just turn some up. (laughs) And then you won't be able to stop me. (laughs) Except I do the editing. Until the next time, this is Fourth State Podcast, and I'm Marty Duran. Now, Bob Spatano. And it's been great to be with you. See you next time.